in light of the challenges that have been before you is incredibly important for all of us at Cornerstone to be able to see the Lord's men who could and or should be nominated uh, to serve as leaders among you. And so this is an important time, and I wanted to be able to speak to you from God's Word, specifically from the New Testament, about the qualifications of an elder. Now, normally, what that probably would mean for the preacher is the opportunity to speak on 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, because that's where you see those qualifications or character qualities most uh, captured in our New Testaments in those specifically, those two specific passages. But for this morning, I want to take a little bit of a wider perspective. I want us to look at seven passages. Now, I know last time I talked on seven signs from the Gospel of John, and I talked for a really, really long time, probably the longest time I've ever spoken in my entire life in one setting. I do not want to attempt to reduplicate the time of my preaching this morning as compared to last time, but I do want to take seven passages, and I do want to teach from those seven passages the qualities or the qualifications of an elder. And I think that's important for us to get a panoramic view of this matter of the eldership, as important, as crucial as it is for the life of every local church. And so I want us to go in canonical order from the canon as it is laid out for us in the New Testament. So if you would, please turn to the first one in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. Now, I've chosen these seven passages, although we'll look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as one passage with, with parallel opportunity, but we will look at seven different sections of Scripture. And you know, of course, that there is a teaching that seven is the number of perfection, right? Well, I am not saying that via these seven passages that we're looking for the perfect elder, okay? That's not why I've chosen these seven passages. I've simply chosen these passages not for the number seven, speaking of the number of perfection, but simply seven crucial texts, seven essential passages in our New Testament that speak of the matter of the man of God, of the elder, the pastor, the shepherd, the overseer, all of those synonymously speaking of the, the same office. And I've chosen those seven passages because I think they best capture what you ought to be looking for when you come to the place of nominating whom you would say should serve as an elder in this church, okay? What I'd love for you to do is take these seven passages and from this morning until next Lord's Day, read them, meditate upon them, and then come with your name or names of the nomination process for the office of elder because you believe that man or men best capture the essence of these texts, okay? Fair enough? And what I want you to do is potentially write down not everything I'm going to say because that would be impossible, but what I'd like for you to do is to write down for each, each passage a C word that I'm going to give you, okay? 
a word that I believe captures the essence of each of these texts. And when you pray, when you meditate upon these texts through the coming week, I want you to think about each of these C words that capture not only the essence of the text, but it also captures the essence of what you believe that man to be, okay? Not that even you know that man so thoroughly and so completely that you believe that each of these C words captures that man, but that you believe it approximates that man, all right? Because I think that would be fair both in terms of your knowledge of those persons and their ability to live before you these passages so that you would be comfortable nominating them to serve as an elder, okay? A, a, a dual opportunity, your perception of them and their ability to express their lives before you, all right? Okay, with that, look with me at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And if we could, I'll give you some of these C's at the beginning of the text. Some of them I'll give it to you in the middle of the text when we come to a particular word that might capture the essence of, of a text, or I might give it to you at the end, all right? But I'll try to repeat them, and then we'll try to summarize at the end. The first C that I see here from Acts chapter 20 is what we could call commitment. Commitment. That's a word that I believe captures the essence of the, the Apostle Paul's heart as an elder, as he is describing his farewell message to the elders of the church at Ephesus that was pastored, of course, later by Timothy, and how he's speaking from his heart, his heart of commitment, as he's saying goodbye to them for the last time. You'll see that as the chapter unfolds. Acts chapter 20. We'll start from verse 17. And I wish that I could do an exposition of each of these seven texts, but in order for us to do that, we'd be till, here until 5 o'clock. And nobody wants to be here listening to me, including me, till 5 o'clock, all right? But let's start in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, that's the island of Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, that's Asia Minor, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord, and notice these 100% words, that's what I call them, with all humility. Now that's an amazing testimony from a man who says, this is the way I acted toward you. This was my level of commitment. And for him to say, with all humility. Now we know that that was not only what he believed about himself, but we know also that it's true because when Paul wrote this, he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow him to write something that wasn't true, right? So we know that he served with all humility among them. That was his commitment. And with tears, that's his passion, and with trials, those are his circumstances, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I taught you privately and I taught you publicly, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Here's his message. Here's his committed message. Repentance toward God 
and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, that means listen carefully, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me by, by way of revelation, the Holy Spirit is communicating to me that in every city, every city, bonds and afflictions await me. Now, how would you like to know beforehand that the next city that you were going to, persecutions, trials, afflictions, even bonds, uh, physical lacerations, beatings, imprisonments were awaiting you via your ministry commitment. Now, this is a committed man. This is why I've chosen this word. This is how committed he is. Notice what he says, verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. That's, that's a half-sentence way of saying something like this. I'm not self-protective. I'm not saying, well, Holy Spirit, if this is what you're saying awaits me in the next city, I'm not interested in going there. Because if those bonds and afflictions, those trials and those tests, those beatings, those lacerations, if they await me, I'm not interested in going. That would be an example of self-protection, right? But what he says is, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. How many of us could honestly say that? I'm not sure I'd be able to say that in toto, right? That's his commitment about his ministry. Because he says, the reason why I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself is so that or for the purpose that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. You remember on the Damascus Road, that's where he received that ministry calling to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's my commitment. I will be undeterred, undistracted. I will not be dismayed. I will not be taken away from the ministry commitment that I have been given from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, here's his commitment. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. I taught you everything with tears, with trials, with all humility, with a solemn testifying even to the bonds and afflictions that await me that I taught you the entire counsel of God. I didn't hold anything back. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you everything even when it was something that was going to mean certain persecution from the Jews toward myself and possibly even toward you because of what our common confession was going to be. Now that, my friends, that's a huge commitment. And that's the kind of commitment that ought to be marked in any man of God, in any elder, any pastor, any shepherd, any overseer to whom you're comfortable in nominating. And then he gives a warning. 
Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That is the blood of Christ. And notice this warning. I know that after my departure, verse 29, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In other words, those from the outside, savage wolves, will attempt to come in external to internal so as to lead you astray, and they're going to rip you up. And then internally, amazingly, verse 30, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So external to internal, and then internal as a rising up from within. So watch out for the savage wolves that are out there, and watch out also for the wolves inside, which means that you ought to make sure that the persons that you're nominating as best as you can tell at this moment and with your greatest level of discernment aren't those who are attempting to rise up from within to draw away you as disciples after them. That's, that's a major responsibility for any church to nominate those from within that they believe ought to arise from within, not to draw away disciples after them and their own mission, their own objectives, which aren't God's, but God's objectives. The, the very solemn testifying of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 31, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with what? Tears. So he says, with tears and trials, verse 19 and verse 31, for a period of three years, he even gives specificity to how long he was with them, I did not cease to admonish each one, that is each one of you, with tears. Now you know why I've chosen the word commitment. It's hard work. It's, it's, it takes everything about you as a leader to commit yourself, whether it's a period of three years or longer, to give to your people, admonishing them, even if need be, with tears, with all humility, trials. And then he says, verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, look at how I acted among you. And when I give you these passages, there'll be so much overlap, and there should be, from all of these qualities that we're going to talk about. And this is that quality that I didn't covet anything of yours, and I worked with my own hands, and I did that which was pleasing and right and honorable in the sight of God, and you know that. That's why he could say, with all humility. 
And then notice the scene. Notice how much affection they had for him because they saw how much affection he had for them with all of his tears, all of his commitment. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud. I don't know how many elders there were, but there were obviously more than one. And there was Paul, and there were the men who were with him. And it was such an emotional scene because he said, this is the last time undoubtedly that I'll be with you. And they prayed, and they all wept aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. What a scene. Now, if you just think about it for one moment, that is an emotional, affectionate scene. But think about what he just said to them. He says in verse 30, And I tell you, I solemnly warn you, that even some from among your own selves will rise up, not sparing the flock. Do you know that he was both affectionate toward all of them, but he was also leery because he presumed that maybe some of them, maybe not directly those who are around, but maybe someone who would be appointed two years from now or five years from now, at some point he's saying, while I'm embracing all of you and praying with all of you, I'm also warning you that some from among your own selves could very eventually rise up, not sparing the flock, to draw away you as disciples after them and their own agenda. Can you imagine that scene? Maybe they're all holding hands. Certainly they're close enough that it says they're repeatedly kissing Paul on his neck. They're, they're repeatedly embracing him and they're praying and there's loud weeping. And yet, even if they're close together, holding hands, hugging each other, some from among that group may be themselves imposters. That's incredible to think about. That's how important it is when you make a commitment yourself in the nomination process of another elder. It takes committed prayer. It takes careful deliberation. Because none of us know, except by God's grace, who those men ought to be. And that's why there ought to be a process. And you find the commitment level on the part of those very men to whom you'll nominate, and the first place to go is the very commitment of their life. Acts chapter 20. All right, let's go to the next one. Let's go to Galatians chapters 1 and 2. This is a commitment that I think we could use the C word crucifixion. Crucifixion. And I've used that particular C word because these are two chapters, Galatians 1 and 2, on the gospel. The gospel of our crucified Savior, risen again. This is all about the gospel. And the reason why I've chosen this particular text, these two chapters, this passage, is because the gospel is so central, so key, so fundamental in your ability to choose from among your own selves a man who is totally sold out and committed to gospel proclamation, right? Galatians chapter 1. You know that Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that I, even if I, Paul the apostle, or an angel or angels from heaven should preach to you a gospel 
contrary to that which you've heard, Galatians chapter 1, let him be what? Damned. Let him be accursed. Now that, that, my friends, is a tremendous, tremendous warning for everybody. Paul's even including himself in the condemnation of those who would preach a different gospel than the one that the Galatians had heard. That's why he's saying in verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he said what I just quoted a moment ago. And then he says in verse 9, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be damned, accursed, consigned to judgment. And then to let them know how committed he was to the idea of his own gospel proclamation, the true gospel, he says this, verse 10. I don't know if you've ever seen this connection. For am I now, Paul, seeking the favor of men or of God? What does he mean by that? Or am I striving to please men? Well, what's he driving toward? Here it is. If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bond slave of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, what he's saying is this. I'm so committed to the gospel that I received as a direct revelation from Jesus Christ that if, in fact, I were to be persuaded by anything or anyone to preach a different gospel, my motivation for doing that was be, would be because I was seeking the favor of men and not God. And if I'm seeking man's favor, I would change the gospel message from what it really is. But to show you my commitment, no man has influenced me to, to such a degree that I would depart from the gospel that I received directly from Jesus Christ. I'm not seeking their favor. I'm seeking the favor of God Almighty. That's his commitment. That's his commitment to the crucified and risen Savior. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to describe it. Now, right as chapter 1, and I wish we could go through the entire chapter, but right as chapter 1 is coming to a close, when we enter chapter 2 of Galatians, it's still about the gospel. That's still the context. And Paul, if you're thinking about this rightly, when he says, I'm not seeking the favor of man but I'm only seeking the favor of God with regard to the gospel. Then he gives a huge illustration of someone who had begun to veer from the gospel that Paul has to confront. And guess who that is? It is none other than the apostle Peter. Because Peter was the, the unfortunate living illustration of someone who because of the pressure of men was sliding into being favorable by them rather than by Jesus Christ. This is amazing. Look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. 
while those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, that's to the Jews, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. In other words, we had tandem ministries. He to the Jews, me to the non-Jews. He and I were running on parallel tracks with regard to preaching the gospel and also living the gospel before them. But now he says something happened. Something went wrong. We were on these parallel tracks and something terrible is happening. Verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, pillars in the church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. And then notice the contrast, verse 11, but. In other words, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and they said, we believe you to be an apostle. You weren't with the original 12, but God saved you and called you after that. And so while there were people in the church who were unsure because Paul, Saul, had been persecuting the church before, but now he's among them preaching the gospel, but some of them aren't sure. But apparently, Peter and James and Barnabas, they saw my ministry. They recognized that I had been truly converted, that I was preaching the right gospel, and so they gave me the right hand of fellowship. He's one of us. He's one of us. The Jews weren't sure because, remember, he was seeking to kill the Jews before. But now, he's saying, I'm one of you. Some of them are skeptical. But now, these reported pillars of the church, they're giving him the right hand of fellowship and saying, no church, he's a part of us. And now, Paul has the unenviable task as now being included as one of them, he has to confront one of the reputed pillars. I mean, what a, what a turn of events. And notice what he does. Verse 11, but when Peter came to Antioch, I what? I opposed him to the face. I walked right up to him and I said, Peter, you are denying the very gospel that you claim to believe. How is that? How can it be? He says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then he explains it. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, that is Peter. But when they came, Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Go back to chapter 1. What does Paul say? Am I now seeking the favor of man, the, the party of the circumcision? Am I going to cower in their presence? Am I going to wilt under pressure? Or am I going to reaffirm once again, even in the midst of that pressure, all those trials, all of the lacerations, all of the beatings, all of the imprisonments, am I going to wilt under the pressure and say, okay, all right. And Peter apparently was beginning to do that. And Paul says, I opposed him to the face. You know what, my friends? That's the kind of man you're looking for who will stand in opposition to any other person or leader in the church 
when it appears as though that leader has begun to depart from the very core issue of the crucified and risen Savior of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely. We cannot, we will not have a leader in this church depart from the very reason the church itself exists, the gospel. That's the kind of man you ought to nominate who believes wholeheartedly and will oppose any other leader if need be, if called upon, because he stands in the long line of godly men whose support would believe and would even potentially die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is an opportunity for you to nominate that kind of man who believes in that kind of crucifixion of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Commitment and crucifixion. And if you follow the flow of chapter 2 of the book of Galatians all the way to its end, you know that famous passage there in verse 20? Listen to what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. That's our word, crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that context... For that verse, now I know we use that verse at times to talk about very good things in our sanctification, and we should. But the one thing that this verse in its context is endeavoring to teach us is this. Paul is saying this sweet gospel that I believe, this crucifixion with Christ where I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, that's his way in that verse of talking about the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. The very gospel that I just told you about, I don't nullify it. Well, how could you nullify it, Paul? For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, I stand against those Jewish religionists, the circumcision party, and I'm telling you that Peter, if you believe that you've got to shy away from the Gentiles because the Jews are putting pressure on you, then I'm telling you as I'm standing opposed to you face to face that you are nullifying the grace of God. Now that's an apostle who is standing against another apostle, apostle to right the ship. And of course we know what happens. What does Peter do? I stand corrected. I stand opposed and I repent because we know that by the time the book of Acts comes around with Peter filled with the Holy Spirit preaches the unnullified gospel, right? That's the kind of man, those are the kinds of men that you ought to nominate who stand clearly and irrevocably for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This is another crucial text that you ought to meditate upon when you're thinking about the nomination process. These are the qualities of an elder. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body which is the church and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That's a man you ought to be looking for, someone who carries out the preaching of the Word of God. 
What kind of word of God is he specifically referring to? Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory. And then I love these two verses. They are actually the verses that when someone asks me to sign something, a book that I've written or a or, or their, the flyleaf of their Bible. I write down there, Lance Quinn, Colossians 1, 28 and 29. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. What's the C word here? You see it in that text in verse 28? Completeness. Completeness or completion. That ought to be the goal of every man that you nominate that you see in his life, in his ministry, in his heart, in his family, in his own commitment, in his character. This idea that it is my life goal. Whether he's paid by the church or not, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. That's a matter of gifting. If a man ought to be gifted enough that he's freed up financially to serve you full-time, then praise God, so be it. If a man is working in a job where his full-time vocation is not ministry, but he's carrying out these same responsibilities, maybe only hindered by time or opportunity, but he is every bit an elder among you, then let him serve in that way, so be it, praise God doesn't matter. doesn't matter about the pay. What matters is that each of those brethren, whether they be paid full-time by the church or not, have the same level of commitment. That is, that they are endeavoring to present every man in their sphere of influence as complete in Christ. There's a completion work that's going on. There's a completeness that needs to be pursued. And that is the very commitment and the very calling upon a man of God, that he's preaching the Word of God, that he's preaching the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and that he's doing so according to verse 29 in such a way that he says, I labor, agonizomai, striving, agonizomai, according to his power which mightily works within me. By the way, labor, striving, power, and works are all four Greek words that speak of working, power, might, He's emphasizing four times in one sentence the idea of the work that's involved and the power that we need from the Holy Spirit to carry out such preaching, full preaching of the Word of God. So there's a commitment. Acts chapter 20. Galatians chapter 1, there's a crucifixion that we preach, and we will not waver from that. We will not step aside. We will not cower in the presence of any other party, whether it be the circumcision party of the Jews or whether it be of the Gentiles and their pagan ways and their multiplicity of gods, whether it be any so-called God today, whether it's any other teaching, any other heresy, any other issue for which it comes against the church, we will not allow the gospel to be upset, spoiled, turned, upended in any way so that the gospel itself will be eclipsed in our generation. We will not allow that to happen. We believe in the crucifixion 
and the rising Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us, and we will not compromise that gospel, and we will fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God because our endeavor, our goal, is to present every man complete in Christ. Those are three C words that are incredibly important to you. Let's go on to the next passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The next C word before us is the word care, C-A-R-E, caring, caring. This is so precious. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Look for a man who thinks of you as very dear to his heart. Think of that man. Think of those men that you are incredibly dear to them. That they're not only imparting to you the gospel of God, but, but their own lives they're giving to you. The self-sacrifice, the commitment, the, the sustaining idea that I've given everything to you. Not only what I believe, the gospel, but what I have, my own life, my own example. And notice how this comes in such a wonderful way. Verse 7, back up to verse 7. How did, they, how did he impart his life? How did the apostolic band show them by example that they had become very dear to those apostles? Here's what he says, verse 7. We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly, and there's our word, New American Standard Bible, cares for her own children. Look, I've seen this firsthand. If you weren't here when I preached last time and heard the introduction, my wife and I have eight children. And eight times in my life, I've seen the wonder, the gentleness, the care of a nursing mother. It's been phenomenal to watch. There's almost an envy when I see my wife nursing our children. I say almost because I don't have, number one, the plumbing, and number two, because I'm not a man, I don't really understand all of the inner workings of carrying a child for nine months of your life, birthing that child, and then caring for that child in such a tender way. I think I know a little bit, but I have no conception, pardon the pun, I have no conception of what it's like to nurse a child and care for a child like a tender mother would. But I've seen it, and I know at least to a faint degree what it means to impart the gospel to someone and then for that person to be so dear to me, it would be like a nursing mother who cares for that child so tenderly. But lest, lest the men, lest the men in the crowd be thinking that we're being left out, notice what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. 
And this is where the ladies sort of look to us in this spiritual parentage and say, I know what it means to be a nursing mother, to be a, a, a feminine person who is caring and sweethearted and so tender towards someone. And here when I watch my husband or I watch my dad or I watch my uncle or I watch a leader, a spiritual leader in the home who leads in three ways, notice what he says, exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. So to add to the tenderness and the care of a nursing mother, the gentleness, it says, the nursing, tender care, we can add exhorting and encouraging and imploring. And you see in the Apostle Paul and his band, all of those three attributes apiece, six of them in one person. You say, I'm not sure I could nominate anybody because I'm not sure I see all those six qualities. We're not talking about perfection not talking about perfection, but we are talking about the direction of a man's life. Here's the direction of his life. He's headed there. He hasn't arrived. None of us have arrived. If you were to ask my wife, uh, did you exhort and encourage and implore all of those eight children, and all of them are teenager age or above now, did he do that as this father that's described there? And she would say, sometimes, sometimes. Is that the balance of his life? I would trust she would say yes. If, if she were to say, and I also saw him be very tender, very caring, very gentle toward the flock, including our children, that's the kind of man you want. That's the kind of man you want to pursue. That's incredible. That's the caring nature of the shepherd. Yes, he has this bold commitment like, like Acts 20. I'm warning you. I'm telling you that ravenage, uh, ravaging wolves will not spare the flock and some from among your own selves. And you're saying, what I see there is strength, of power, of conviction, of commitment, and that's true. But you also see right here in 1 Thessalonians 2, the caring and the tender and the imploring and the exhorting and the encouraging. That's the tender care of a shepherd. And that's who you need. At times, when you're not what you need to be, you, you need to have somebody come and say, I admonish you. That's, that's the tenderness of a shepherd, even though it might not look like it, it might not seem like it. And at times, when you are downtrodden, when you are disheartened, you need someone to come and not admonish you, but to encourage you. And that's the caring aspect of a shepherd as well. The commitment, the crucifixion, the gospel and the completeness of, of making sure every man is mature in Christ and the caring. How about the character? The character. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll add Titus 1 in a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you've probably had your own pastor and or others teach on this, so I'll go through these very, very quickly. Going through them quickly does not mean, let me repeat, does not mean that I think these things are not as important as all the others. We just don't have the time to go through them, but they are incredibly important. In fact, these may be considered some of the most important because they're a direct reflection on the character of a man, the internal operations of a man. And here they are, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, 
It is a fine work, a noble work he desires to do. The first idea of a man who upon his nomination says, I desire to do it, is in fact that very noble work that he desires to do. He desires not the office, not the accolades, not the title, but the work. That's what it says here. It is a fine work he desires to do. Yes, I desire the work. And you say, are you crazy? You desire all that work, all the pain, all the late nights, all the study hours, all the preaching, and more Dis, uh, church discipline, standing up in front and having to discipline someone. It, you desire all of that. If you're called, you do. Because you know it's how God works in the church with leaders. And if you're one of those, you want that, that work. And then he gives those character qualities. And overseer, that just, that's just another term for elder, must be above reproach. That's sort of the overarching term. That's someone who is above reproach, and you say, what does that mean? Someone who is blameless in his character. Not perfect, but for which there is no automatic blame that could be placed on his life so as to disqualify him. That's what that means. And then he gives, with that umbrella term, above reproach, some specificity about what it means to be above reproach. And here they are. The husband of one wife. Probably not the best translation. It probably means something like this. A one-woman man. And it doesn't specifically refer to divorce there. That's not a quality that specifically excludes someone who's been divorced. It simply means someone in the present tense, because all these qualities are present tense qualities. It doesn't mean that a divorced man cannot serve. It may only mean that a divorced man probably cannot serve. Because there may be something in his past, even his far past, or maybe his recent past, for which he's not above reproach in the eyes of the majority of the congregation. So that's covered, the divorce issue, above the banner of what it means to be above reproach generally, not that term, husband of one wife. What that term means is something like this, literally translated, a one-woman man. A one-woman man. In other words, in the present tense quality of his life, is he totally and completely committed to the woman who is his wife? You say, well, what if he's not married? Then you have to look to some of these other qualities, which means then that a single man is also not automatically disqualified from serving as an elder. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. You have to evaluate that man upon other qualities that are listed here. And here they are, temperate. That means he's balanced. Prudent, that means he's wise. He's able to make good decisions. Respectable, that's the word cosmion. That's from which we get cosmetics. That means that he's well-ordered, right? There are women who don't want to walk out of the house until their face is well-ordered. They've got all the proper cosmetics. Same for a guy. You want to walk out of the house and you want to say to a watching world, I want to be a well-ordered man. I want to be respectable in the eyes of others. The next, hospitable. That means he opens his home for those who are strangers and for those who are not. Able to teach, that is a character quality, but it's a character quality that speaks also most predominantly of his aptitude to teach. If a man simply cannot teach, that means he has not been gifted to teach, and that means that he has not been called to serve as an elder in the local church. You say, well, that sounds very subjective. It is. 
but the majority of the church will determine those who are indeed gifted to teach. Verse 3, not addicted to wine. That means he doesn't linger long toward wine. That doesn't mean that he's so tempted to drink this particular alcoholic beverage of the day that his senses are dulled and that his decision-making is blurred. And then it says, or pugnacious. That's a word that means that he's not a brawler. He's not a fighter. And it probably speaks of someone who's that way in the literal sense, that he's not fighting people physically. But it also could mean, of course, by extension, someone who is just naturally, by way of his current character qualities, someone who is picking a fight, someone who is pugnacious, someone who is always looking for the other side of the angle so that his way would be the way. And then he says, as a corollary contrary to that pugnaciousness, but gentle, but gentle and peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well. That probably means that you have children still in the home and you are managing your wife and your children well, keeping your children under control with all dignity. And then he says, verse 5, parenthetically, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If he can't, if he can't be tested and found proven in his home, then how will he be able to take care of the greater household of God? And not a new convert, verse 6, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condem condem condemnation incurred by the devil. Someone who's not a new convert, someone who's not a new Christian, who says, hey, I like this leadership gig. This is good. That means I'm in charge. That means I've got the power. That's pride. That's arrogance. Someone should not serve as an elder if he has those kinds of character aspirations. And then verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. You say, well, how would you be able to, to work that through? Well, when I was pastoring a church in Little Rock, when there were men who were nominated who were not freed up to work full-time for the church as a compensated elder, for the non-compensated elders, we would call their workplace. We would ask that man, if he was nominated, he desired to serve, could you give us the name of your boss? Could you give us the name of your co-workers? And I would place calls or other uh, men would place calls and say, could you give us a character reference on so-and-so? He's being nominated to serve as a leader in the local church, and we want to ask you about his character in his place of business. I mean, I don't know how else you would try to figure out that quality, right? And you know what that did? It caused those people at that workplace to say, hey, that church must really be serious about their leaders. Wow, this is incredible. They're asking me. You say, but you're asking a potentially a pagan person about the character of the believing person who works with them in their job? Yes, you are. And guess what? Maybe through some of those phone calls, you'll have the opportunity then to spend more time with those pagan people at that place of business. Or maybe he will. And maybe he'll be able to get involved in conversations with such pagan persons if he hasn't already already. And he might be able to say to them, hey, you know that call? I welcomed that call. Let me tell you why. And then slide right into a communication of the gospel. Right? That's a wonderful thing. Turn to Titus 1. You'll see the same qualities, a few variations. Verse 5, I left you in Crete 
Paul tells Titus that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, there's our umbrella term again. The husband of one wife, there's that one woman man. Having children who believe. I wish we had time to get into that more deeply, but we don't. But let's just say, let's just say for the sake of argument, that if indeed 1 Timothy 3 was talking about children inside the home and that they must be under control with all dignity, might this imply the possibility? I'm not stating it dogmatically, only saying, might this suggest the possibility that on the island of Crete, these children were those who were outside the home and you're now looking at a man to see how the home was taken care of and how those children might also give testimony about their father's character? Possibly. If it doesn't mean that, then it means the same thing that 1 Timothy 3 means, and it just means it's a different way of saying it. And you might say something like this. Rather than the active form of pistos there, the idea of children who believe, that would be the active form. Maybe this is the more passive form, children who are faithful. Of course, the answer would be faithful to what? Faithful to their parents faithful to the teaching of their parents, faithful to the admonitions of their parents. So if this is the same thing that Timothy says, it would be the same idea that those children are under control with all dignity and they are faithful to the dictates of the leadership of their father and that you can evaluate him on that basis. And then he says, not just children who believe, but those children are not accused themselves of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not like that brawler, not, not like that pugnacious person, not addicted to wine. He's not lingering near wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. He doesn't have the love of money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout. That means holy, self-controlled. And then here's sort of that aptness to teach idea again, but it's in a proactive way, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that's the teaching of God's word, the teaching of the gospel, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and he has the ability to refute those who contradict. The twin ideas that he's proactively able to exhort in sound doctrine and reactively able to refute those who contradict. False teachers, false doctrine. You say, boy, that requires a great level of skill. Yes, it does. And these are the character qualities and the aptitudes of a man you ought to be thinking of as you nominate. So this is character, character. And then if I could cheat a little bit, go to 2 Timothy, just a couple of pages back to your left, Chapter 2. Verse 20 says, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver, silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. 2 Timothy 2.21. Therefore, if anyone, and what would you presume our next C word would be? Cleanses cleanliness. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, 
sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now you say, that's when I thought you were going to get to the idea of his sexual purity. Here's the only problem. That's not what that youthful lust phrase is referring to. That's referring to a person who is putting away the youthful lust of being argumentative, of being someone who wants to wrangle with people that he believes are teaching falsely. And you know what is interesting about this? This is a, a section in 2 Timothy 2 that is speaking not of sexual purity. That's already covered in a person who needs to be above reproach. This is covering the idea of this young guy, however young he may be, and Timothy might here be a person who is around 40 years of age. Do you know that that in that time was an age that was considered youthful? Now, I know that's not what we think of today. I'm 52 years old, and most of you would say, that ain't young. That's not young. 40, no, no, that's getting up there. It's the 20s or maybe the 30s these days that we say are young. This is 20s, 30s, 40s, and what he's saying is that they, in those categories, have propensities as younger persons to, to wrangle. I know that's the context because look at what he says right after what I finished in reading verse 22. But refuse full, foolish, verse 23, and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Here's the concept. Cleanse yourself from the propensity as a younger man to be argumentative, to be quarrelsome, and not to be kind and gentle and patient. Because if you're kind and gentle and patient, you provide a platform for yourself to be able to win somebody who wants to argue or quarrel or dispute about the law or about the gospel in such a way that when they see the way you're going about their conversation, they will be one and that you can correct them and so prove yourself to be useful to the master, sanctified, holy, fit for the master's use. Cleansing yourself. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm cleansed of that youthful zeal to argue my position, my point. That's why that person should not be serving as an elder in the church, because they've not yet learned how to live in such a way that the kindness, the gentleness, and even the correction when it needs to happen is done in such a way that a person is corrected genuinely and truthfully with the gospel and that they don't get choked by your messenger status or approach. You know the old adage, don't shoot the messenger? Well, you don't want to be like the person as a man of God to say, look, it's not about me, it's about the message. No, didn't Paul say to the Thessalonians, we not only imparted to you the gospel, but our own lives because you'd become so dear to us. You love that person even as an unbeliever or you love believers in the fellowship to the degree that you want to win them by your winsome style, 
your personality, your words, your actions, so that people respect you greatly even when you punch them in the gut with the truth. That's, that's what you want. You want conviction to come into their hearts to such a degree that they say something like this, I don't agree with that or I'm convicted by that, but here's something I cannot refute. He is kind, gentle, peaceable, devout, upright. I cannot quarrel with his presentation. That's what you want. That's what you need. You need somebody who cleanses himself from those things. What number is that? That's number six. One more, 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, and we'll be done. 1 Peter 5. I couldn't decide which C, so I'm going to give you two of them in one sentence. I've cheated. I admit it. Here it is. Let's call it clothing yourself with a crown. Clothing yourself with a crown. Both C's are listed here, 1 Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, 1 Peter 5, 1, and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the verb. That's the command. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Now, the reason why I say that the word elder, the word pastor, the word, that's the word shepherd that's there in verse 2, and the word oversight in verse 2 are all referring to the same thing is because he refers to them in three different ways. It has to be synonymous. We're not talking about three different offices. The first one, elder, verse 1. Second, shepherd, first word of verse 2. Third, exercising oversight or bishop. That, that is a synonymous way of talking about the one office, the one man, elder. And in a plurality of elders, because he says, I'm your fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God among you, there's a plurality of elders, and they do it in three ways. Notice, it's sort of like this. Here's the way I want you to do it, Peter says. This, but not this. This, but not this. This way, but not that way. So three couplets, positive first, negative second. Notice what he says. Here's how you should shepherd the flock. This is the person you ought to be nominating. Exercise oversight, but not under compulsion. Voluntarily, according to the will of God. Here's the second one. And not for sort of gain, but with eagerness. Here's the third one nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples, right? So you've got either the positive first and the negative or the negative first and the positive, but what you have are ways that you can practically think as you meditate, as you memorize the idea of these passages in your heart and mind, and you come to write that down on the piece of paper, and you're saying, when I think of this brother, I'm thinking of a person who exercises oversight, but he does it in such a way that it's not forced it's not under compulsion. It's not a guy who says, I don't know why I was nominated. I really don't like this. It's really hard. I, I'd really like to step down, but I can't because there's so much pressure because I was nominated. You don't want a man like that. You want a man who says, I desire this noble work of the office. And I'm doing so not because I'm coerced into it, 
but because I'm doing it voluntarily. And then secondly, you want a person who says, in fact, I'm doing this with eagerness, eagerness to work, and not because I'm looking at the cash, not because I'm looking for the kudos, not because I'm looking for all the bells and whistles that accrue to me for the great job that I'm doing. And then thirdly, I'm doing it because I'm wanting to be proved as an example to the flock and that I'm not lording it over the people. Be careful, watch out, be concerned about anybody who is nominated even after the nomination process and then they come to you for a formal vote. If you have any questions about somebody that you believe might in fact be someone lording it over the flock, then be concerned, share those concerns, share them with myself, share them with Han Cho. Be ready to say, I'm unsure. I could be convinced, but I'm unsure. That's fair for you. That's honorable for you. And if you are convinced through conversation, through opportunity, through dialogue, and you say, I was wrong, then fair enough. But if you were right, the Lord may have used you in a way to see a person who in small ways had begun to lord it over those around him, and maybe you're on to something. It's a very important passage. And now here's the crown, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown. But you know, it's not just for the sake of reward when you do this kind of good work as a shepherd. It's not just because you want to see the chief shepherd honor the under-shepherd with a crown of reward. There's a certain way you ought to do it, and I'm so glad that it's listed here because when I was talking about Galatians 1 and 2, we were pretty hard on Peter, right? Paul was hard on Peter. Paul opposed him to the face. And I did allude to the fact that in Acts uh, chapters 2 and beyond, there was a sense in which Peter recovered, in, what, in a sense in which Peter responded, and that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we're told by Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he is looking for that crown, but he's doing so with humility. Because verse 5 says this, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you, that means everybody in the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what is that crown that we're looking for? We're looking for a crown that is clothed with humility. And that's what Peter began to live out. And that's why he was what he was. And that's why he had the effect that he had. And that's why God used him in the way that he used him. Because he was a man ministering as a fellow elder among the plurality of elders, and he was clothed with humility. In other words, we could say this. He got it. He got it. He understood. He came to the realization, I cannot deny Christ like I did in the garden. I cannot fade away from the gospel for fear of of the party of the circumcision. I have to be humble. I have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I have to respond with the reward that awaits me, that crown which is glory, totally clothed in humility. And you know where I think he got that? You know where, why I think Peter says what he says there in 1 Peter 5? Because do you remember back to John 15 when the ultimate example of the humble man, the Lord Jesus Christ, said, I'm going to wash your feet? And Peter says, look, Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet, wash my whole body. Another impetuous statement. And the Lord said, look, you're already clean. I just need to do this for your dirty feet because of daily sins. And what did the Lord do? He took that water 
and he took that basin and he took that towel and it says he girded that towel around him and he washed their feet and then he took that towel off and he wiped their feet. Guess what the word is that Peter uses there in 1 Peter 5 when he talks about being clothed with humility? Gird yourself with the clothing of humility. Same word. That's Peter. He got it. He got the message. And you know what? You know why that's a good place to end our message? Peter wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. He messed up. He fouled up. He did things that weren't right. He said things that weren't good. That's what these men whom you will nominate are going to do and say at times. It just proves that they are petrine. They're not perfect. But the direction of their life is going toward that crown of glory because they're girding themselves with humility. And when they mess up, when they foul up, when they say or do things they shouldn't do, they come to you, whether individually or in the corporate body, and they say, I fouled up. I fouled up. I messed up. Please forgive me. And you're going to say, you know, that's why I appreciate that, brother, because he's revealing that he's not perfect. But the direction of his life is toward the goal of receiving the crown because he's clothed with humility. Look, those are seven crucial C's, and I trust all of us will take those to heart as we work through the nomination process, which is so very important for the future life, health, and ministry of this local church. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for endeavoring to teach us through these crucial texts what are the very ideas that should be in our minds as we nominate brothers to this wonderful, noble work. May you be pleased to work through this message and through the process of the next week. And when that nomination process is complete, may you work through the process of examination. And may you work through failing, flawed vessels like us to affirm congregationally those who would need to serve in these important roles. We do this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and for the health and life and ongoing ministry of this great church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.